0: Chapter forty four, Part eight of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Ringeth. A new spirit of legislation, respectable even in its error, arose in the empire with the religion of Constantine. The laws of Moses were received as the divine original of justice, and the Christian princes adapted their penal statutes to the degrees of moral and religious turpitude. Adultery was first declared to be a capital offense. The frailty of the sexes was assimilated to poison or assassination, to sorcery or parricide. The same penalties were inflicted on the passive and active guilt of pederasty, and all criminals, of free or servile condition, were either drowned or beheaded, or cast alive into the avenging flames. The adulterers were spared by the common sympathy of mankind, but the lovers of their own sex were pursued by general and pious indignation. The impure manners of Greece still prevailed in the cities of Asia, and every vice was fomented by the celibacy of the monks and clergy. Justinian relaxed the punishment, at least of female infidelity. The guilty spouse was only condemned to solitude and penance, and by the end of two years she might be recalled to the arm of a forgiving husband. But the same emperor declared himself the implacable enemy of unmanly lust, and the cruelty of his persecution can scarcely be excused by the purity of his motives. In defiance of every principle of justice, he stretched to past, as well as future offences, the operations of his edicts, with the previous allowance of a short respite for confession and pardon. A painful death was inflicted by the amputation of the sinful instrument, or the insertion of sharp reeds into the pores and tubes of most exquisite sensibility. And Justinian defended the propriety of the execution, since the criminals would have lost their hands had they been convicted of sacrilege. In this state of disgrace and agony, two bishops, Isaiah of Rhodes and Alexander of Diospolis, were dragged through the streets of Constantinople, while their brethren were admonished by the voice of a crier to observe this awful lesson and not to pollute the sanctity of their character. Perhaps these prelates were innocent, A sentence of death and infamy was often founded on the slight and suspicious evidence of a child or a servant. The guilt of the green faction, of the rich, and of the enemies of Theodora, was presumed by the judges, and pederasty became the crime of those to whom no crime could be imputed. A French philosopher has dared to remark that whatever is secret must be doubtful, and that our natural horror of vice may be abused as an engine of tyranny. But the favorable persuasion of the same writer, that a legislator may confide in the taste and reason of mankind, is impeached by the unwelcome discovery of the antiquity and extent of the disease. The free citizens of Athens and Rome enjoyed, in all criminal cases, the invaluable privilege of being tried by their country. The administration of justice is the most ancient office of a prince. It was exercised by the Roman kings, and abused by Tarquin, who alone, without law or counsel, pronounced his arbitrary judgments. The first consuls succeeded to this regal prerogative, but the sacred right of appeal soon abolished the jurisdiction of the magistrates, and all public causes were decided by the supreme tribunal of the people. But a wild democracy, superior to the forms, too often disdains the essential principles of justice. The pride of despotism, Was envenomed by plebeian envy, and the heroes of Athens might sometimes applaud the happiness of the Persian, whose fate depended on the caprice of a single tyrant. Some salutary restraints, imposed by the people or their own passions, were at once the cause and effect of the gravity and temperance of the romans. The right of accusation was confined to the magistrates. A vote of the thirty five tribes could inflict a fine but the cognizance of all capital crimes was reserved by a fundamental law to the assembly of the centuries, in which the weight of influence and property was sure to preponderate. Repeated proclamations and adjournments were interposed, to allow time for prejudice and resentment to subside. The whole proceeding might be annulled by a seasonable omen, or the opposition of a tribune, and such popular trials were commonly less formidable to innocence than they were favorable to guilt but this union of the judicial and legislative powers left it doubtful whether the accused party was pardoned or acquitted. And in the defense of an illustrious client, the orators of Rome and Athens addressed their arguments to the policy and benevolence, as well as to the justice of their sovereign. The task of convening the citizens for the trial of each offender became more difficult, as the citizens and the offenders continually multiplied and the ready expedient was adopted of delegating the jurisdiction of the people to the ordinary magistrates, or to extraordinary inquisitors. In the first ages these questions were rare and occasional. In the beginning of the 7th century of Rome they were made perpetual. Four praetors were annually empowered to sit in judgment on the state offenses of treason, extortion, peculation, and bribery and Scylla added new praetors and new questions for those crimes which more directly injure the safety of individuals. By these inquisitors the trial was prepared and directed, but they could only pronounce the sentence of the majority of judges, who with some truth and more prejudice had been compared to the English juries. To discharge this important, though burdensome office, an annual list of ancient and respectable citizens was formed by the praetor, after many constitutional struggles, they were chosen in equal numbers from the Senate, the equestrian order, and the people. Four hundred and fifty were appointed for single questions, and the various rolls or decuries, of judges must have contained the names of some thousand Romans who represented the judicial authority of the state. In each particular cause, a sufficient number was drawn from the urn. Their integrity was guarded by an oath. The mode of ballot secured their independence, suspicion of partiality was removed by the mutual challenges of the accuser and defendant, and the judges of Milo, by the retrenchment of fifteen on each side, were reduced to fifty-one voices or tablets of acquittal, of condemnation, or of favorable doubt. In his civil jurisdiction, the praetor of the city was truly a judge, almost a legislator. But as soon as he had prescribed the action of law, he often referred to a delegate the determination of the fact— with the increase of legal proceedings, the tribunal of the Centumvers, in which he presided, acquired more weight and reputation. But whether he acted alone, or with the advice of his counsel, the most absolute powers might be trusted to a magistrate who is annually chosen by the votes of the people. The rules and precautions of freedom have required some explanation. The order of despotism is simple and inanimate. Before the age of Justinian, or perhaps of Diocletian, the decuries of Roman judges had sunk to an empty title. The humble advice of the assessors might be accepted or despised, and in each tribunal the civil and criminal jurisdiction was administered by a single magistrate who was raised and disgraced by the will of the emperor. A Roman accused of any capital crime might prevent the sentence of the law by voluntary exile or death, Till his guilt had been legally proved, his innocence was presumed, and his person was free; till the votes of the last century had been counted and declared, he might peaceably secede to any of the allied cities of Italy, or Greece, or Asia: his fame and fortunes were preserved, at least to his children, by this civil death; and he might still be happy in every rational and sensual enjoyment, if a mind accustomed to the ambitious tumult of Rome could support the uniformity and silence of Rhodes or Athens. A bolder effort was required to escape from the tyranny of the Caesars, but this effort was rendered familiar by the maxims of the Stoics, the example of the bravest Romans, and the legal encouragements of suicide. The bodies of condemned criminals were exposed to public ignominy, and their children, a more serious evil, were reduced to poverty by the confiscation of their fortunes. But if the victims of Tiberius and Nero anticipated the decree of the prince or senate, their courage and dispatch were recompensed by the applause of the public, the decent honors of burial, and the validity of their testaments. The exquisite avarice and cruelty of Domitian appear to have deprived the unfortunate of this last consolation, and it was still denied even by the clemency of the Antonines. A voluntary death, which, in the case of a capital offense, intervened between the accusation and the sentence, was admitted as a confession of guilt, and the spoils of the deceased were seized by the inhuman claims of the treasury. Yet the civilians have always respected the natural right of a citizen to dispose of his life, and the posthumous disgrace invented by Tarquin to check the despair of his subjects was never revived or imitated by succeeding tyrants. The powers of this world have indeed lost their dominion over him who is resolved on death, and his arm can only be restrained by the religious apprehension of a future state. Suicides are enumerated by Virgil among the unfortunate, rather than the guilty, and the poetical fables of the infernal shades could not seriously influence the faith or practice of mankind. But the precepts of the gospel, or the church, have at length imposed a pious servitude on the minds of Christians, and condemn them to expect, without a murmur, the last stroke of disease or the executioner. The penal statutes form a very small proportion of the sixty-two books of the Code and Pendex, and in all judicial proceedings the life or death of a citizen is determined with less caution or delay than the most ordinary question of covenant or inheritance. This singular distinction, though something may be allowed for the urgent necessity of defending the peace of society, is derived from the nature of criminal and civil jurisprudence. Our duties to the state are simple and uniform. The law by which he is condemned is inscribed not only on brass or marble, but on the conscience of the offender, and his guilt is commonly proved by the testimony of a single fact. But our relations to each other are various and infinite. Our obligations are created, annulled, and modified by injuries, benefits, and promises and the interpretation of voluntary contracts and testaments, which are often dictated by fraud or ignorance, affords a long and laborious exercise to the sagacity of the judge. The business of life is multiplied by the extent of commerce and dominion, and the residence of the parties in the distant provinces of an empire is productive of doubt, delay, and inevitable appeals from the local to the supreme magistrate. Justinian, the Greek emperor of Constantinople and the East, was the legal successor of the Latin shepherd who had planted a colony on the banks of the Tiber. In a period of thirteen hundred years, the laws had reluctantly followed the changes of government and manners, and the laudable desire of conciliating ancient names with recent institutions destroyed the harmony and swelled the magnitude of the obscure and irregular system. The laws which excuse, on any occasions, the ignorance of their subjects, confessed their own imperfections. The civil jurisprudence, as it was abridged by Justinian, still continued a mysterious science and a profitable trade, and the innate perplexity of the study was involved in tenfold darkness by the private industry of the practitioners. The expense of the pursuit sometimes exceeded the value of the prize, and the fairest rights were abandoned by the poverty or prudence of the claimants. Such costly justice might tend to abate the spirit of litigation, but the unequal pressure serves only to increase the influence of the rich and to aggravate the misery of the poor. By these dilatory and expensive proceedings the wealthy pleader obtains a more certain advantage than he could hope from the accidental corruption of his judge. The experience of an abuse, from which our own age and country are not perfectly exempt, may sometimes provoke a generous indignation, and extort the hasty wish of exchanging our elaborate jurisprudence for the simple and summary decrees of a Turkish cadi. Our calmer reflection will suggest that such forms and delays are necessary to guard the person and property of the citizen, that the discretion of the judge is the first engine of tyranny, and that the laws of a free people should foresee and determine every question that may probably arise in the exercise of power and the transactions of industry, but the government of Justinian united the evils of liberty and servitude, and the Romans were oppressed at the same time by the multiplicity of their laws and the arbitrary will of their master. End of chapter 44, part 8, and end of chapter 44. Recording by Adam Ringeth.